You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Close your eyes. Picture a perfect Canadian wilderness moment. You're enjoying nature in one of our many lush national parks. And around the bend, you catch a glimpse of something moving. You emerge through the trees into a clearing, and you see them. A mother deer and two fawns standing there, just looking at you. They don't seem to be scared. They're almost close enough to touch. And you have an apple in your pocket. You could hold it out for them. See what happens. Should you? White-tailed deer here in Canada have tested positive for COVID-19. American researchers have evidence that transmission is explosive in this particular animal population. The scenario I just described, though charming, is exaggerated, obviously. But this question is very real. Whenever, or maybe if, the prevalence of COVID-19 gets to near zero in humans in Canada, it will still remain in animals across the country, especially in deer. And animals, of course, can not only be vectors for transmission to humans, they act as a reservoir, keeping the virus in circulation. But what do we do about that? Should we live and let live and hope for the best? How could we possibly comprehensively test animal populations? So how should we monitor for it? What do we know about the potential for new variants to emerge from animals like deer or mink? And since we're asking, what about COVID and our household pets? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Denise Balkasun is the Ontario Bureau Chief for our friends at the Narwhal. Hey, Denise. Hi, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Why don't you start us off today by telling us about some of the fascinating work some of the people in your reporting do. Who is Samira Mubareka and what does she do? Samira Mubareka, she is a, um, a researcher at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. She's a microbiologist. Um, she does a lot of things in terms of COVID-19 surveillance. And she, at the very beginning of the pandemic, was part of a team that isolated the genetic sequence of SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, and that, you know, you need to isolate the virus so you can create treatments, create vaccines. Um, and then also so you can do genomic surveillance, which means that as thousands and millions of people are getting covid across the world, tracing um, how COVID is changing, you know, which populations are getting which version of the virus. Most public health researchers, I think around the world at this point, are trying to work from this framework that they call One Health, which means that, you know, humans live on Earth um, and our health is related to the health of the ecosystems that we live in, um, the animals in those ecosystems, the environment that we live in. And so pretty early on, um, people like Samira around the world, researchers around the world, wanted to know what was going to happen with COVID and animals. They were all quite sure that eventually it was going to get into animals. Um, 
you know, SARS-CoV-2 is like the original SARS and the original SARS did affect cats, for example, and cats were able to pass it from cat to cat. Um, so as soon as they had what, you know, a bit of a handle on what was happening with humans or even, you know, so researchers like Samira who mostly focus on human populations, even as they were doing their human work, vets and more animal focused doctors were starting to um, test, especially pets. It was found in pets very easily. So the point was, here's this new virus, this new disease. It's going to affect all animals, not every single animal, but humans aren't the only animal that's going to be affected. And we need to keep an eye on that from the very beginning. What does keeping an eye on that look like? Does she go out in the field and test animals? Do we collect samples routinely from certain animals? Like, What kind of work is she physically doing? So she's in a lab and the sam- and the samples are sent to her and she does the genomic testing of them. So she's not collecting samples herself. Um, I spoke to the head of um, the Center for Zoonosis at the U- University of Guelph. His name's J. Scott Weiss. He does do some field testing. He started a pet testing program very early in the pandemic. And so um, he and his team, you know, would put on all their PPE. And if there was a household where they knew humans had COVID, they would go and they would test the cats and dogs. Hmm. They also knew that there were animals that they wanted to keep an eye on for different reasons, you know, because they thought they were susceptible, because there are a lot of them, because they're the kind of animals that interact with human populations. And so, you know, there are testing programs for different animal populations ongoing all the time. Um, a lot of that is run through a group called the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative. And so they very early added SARS-CoV-2 testing to their regimen of whatever tests they were already doing for different animal populations. So without going into an exhaustive list of, you know, all the animals that have been tested and and what the results are, what in general uh, are we finding in terms of SARS-CoV-2 in animals in Canada? Like, which species are most susceptible? What are microbiologists watching for, I guess? Mm-hmm. Um, so when I spoke to Samira, she told me, you know, the good news is that most of the animals they've tested are negative. You know, she said they put out what was a very boring paper because it's like we tested all these animals and none of them have COVID. Right. Um, but that's actually what we want to hear. So um, in Canada, other than white-tailed deer, 16 wild animal populations have been tested that have been found negative. And those are animals like skunks, marten. They tested raccoons because raccoons interact with humans a lot. And so that's a bit worrisome. Um, there's some ongoing testing of rodents because rodents are worrying a lot of researchers because again, they interact with humans. There's so many of them. They reproduce very fast. And so that would be stressful if it were to get into a rodent population. But so far, the only wild animal in Canada that has been found to have either SARS antibodies or COVID-19 itself um, are white-tailed deer. And then in Canada and around the world, uh, the animal that's actually been the most Affected by COVID is mink, farmed mink. It's spread super duper fast on a lot of mink farms around the world. Um, and that's actually probably the scariest animal situation so far. Why is that? Because it has spread among the mink very fast. Mink are very small animals that escape a lot. Mm-hmm. And so it can get out into you know the wild and, and potentially infect wildlife. 
Um, and mink have also been shown to be able to spread it to humans. And so that also is worrisome. And so when you have a population like mink, like farmed mink, where there's a whole bunch of them together in a small space, we already know that's like terrible for COVID. And so what happens when you have so many animals, including humans in the same space that are being exposed to the virus, it gives the virus a chance to um, keep trying to break down every animal's immune system. And so it's going to, you know, all viruses, they're always mutating all the time, always trying to become more effective. And so they're in this population of however many hundreds or thousands of mink. Um, there's, a, there's a real worry that it will mutate. It will become another variant. It will become a variant that can infect humans right. and one that um, brings on another terrible wave of COVID-19. And so in other countries, you know, Denmark is the big example. There have been a lot of mink that they've actually culled. Millions and millions of mink have been culled because it just spread so fast and the worry was so great and nobody knew what else to do. And, you know, that's, you know, it's pretty tragic and pretty frightening. What do we know about how often you mentioned the possibility that minks can transmit to humans? What do we know about the possibility of animals in general transmitting to humans in terms of just like how common that is. You know, I know at the beginning of the pandemic, there were uh, some public health orders to, you know, if you were infected, like don't don't snuggle your cat or or whatever it is. But I guess I'm just trying to get a sense of how often do we know that actually happens? Um, so with cats and dogs, it doesn't seem to happen. There hasn't been a recorded case that I know of so far. Okay. It's not a huge worry at this point. So right when my story came out, Samira and and um, a big team of researchers led by the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, which um, Scott Weiss was also on, and another researcher that I spoke to from the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative, she was on that team as well. And so it looks like um, there has been a case of deer passing it on to humans. But then the good news there was that uh, it didn't pass on to any other humans. And actually, it looks like the human was um, vaccinated and did not get very sick and basically neutralized that lineage of the virus. So um, it's not a huge worry right now. It's just a thing that to keep an eye on. So the real worry then is, uh, you know, as you described, the virus mutates in, in a wild animal population and comes back to humans. I mean, I think the worry is, too, that the animals will get sick, right? Um, right. So that's that's a worry that doesn't seem to be happening either. They're you know cats and dogs. Cats especially apparently um, seem to actually develop respiratory symptoms. And there have been some cats in zoos. I think a snow leopard has died in the states. But overall, the animals that are getting it aren't getting super sick from it. But then yes, the bigger worry is that there will be a mutation. There will be a new variant at the end of February. The team that found that. There had been a likely transmission from deer to humans also found that there was a new lineage, which is not different enough from an existing variant to be a new variant, but it is different enough to sort of take notice of. And that was another thing that, that really they felt needed watching that, that research wasn't peer reviewed, peer reviewed at the time that I wrote the story. So I'm not sure. I probably hasn't been yet. It's only been a couple of weeks, but so there was indication that there was a new lineage in deer and that that lineage had been passed on to humans. But the good news was that the human was vaccinated and it didn't go any further. So in terms of the work that's being done now, then, what are we trying to figure out here that we don't know yet? 
Mm-hmm. So I spoke to a couple of researchers from South Africa for this story. And I think, you know, when you look at the picture beyond Canada, there's just a, a lot of animals who haven't been tested at all. So the researchers I spoke to in South Africa, for example, one of them, um, Dr. Venter, she they had found three or four animals in a South African zoo that had um, antibodies for for SARS-CoV-2. And those are the only cases that are recorded on the entire continent of Africa. And that's just very unlikely to be true, right? So um, there's just not enough surveillance being done generally to know how many animals have it, um, whether it's mutating in other animal populations, whether it's spreading very fast, how long they're sick for, like the incubation period in humans as well is another thing that um, could be problematic in terms of a variant. So um, in the piece, I also talk about like these, there are three leading theories of where Omicron came from. And so one of them is an immunocompromised population. So that would be like a long-term care home or a hospital where there are mm-hmm. a whole bunch of people who um, are immune compromised. And like I said, so the virus is like passing around from person to person, trying to become stronger, and it is able to stick around in, in those people's bodies longer because their immune systems are compromised. So if you have an animal, for example, like humans, we most of us are done with it in two or three weeks. If you have an animal that their their COVID-19 period is, you know, two months or something, that's something that would be good to know in terms of the likely the likelihood of a variant popping up. So we need to know how many animals have it, how long they're having it for. And for new versions of the virus, um, you're looking for different genomic sequences. And so um, Dr. Venter in South Africa, she told me that there have been 25 million genomic sequences recorded for SARS-CoV-2 in humans, um, but only 1,500 for animals. And again, it's very, very unlikely that um, those are the only sequences. It's just those are the only sequences that have been recorded because of how little animal surveillance is being done. So what would it take to really uh, take this problem of COVID in the animal population seriously in terms of surveillance? And uh, and will it get done? Because I know n- not just African countries, many countries around the world are winding down a lot of uh, surveillance measures. Mm-hmm. We're winding down COVID protocols. I don't know if we're winding down surveillance. I mean, we did already, I guess, in Ontario, reduce PCR testing drastically. Uh, but, you know, all the researchers are still on it. You know, they were on genomic surveillance before governments were on. Right. When I talked to Dr. Mubreka at Sunnybrook, you know, she was telling me how when she set up her human surveillance program, it wasn't funded. It wasn't formal. She just sort of pinched a bit of money from this grant and, you know, got some tests over here kind of thing. Um, and it took a while for the province to catch up and actually like fund her program. And at this point, it's sort, it, it seems to be very much the same with the animal surveillance from all the researchers I spoke to. They're not formally funded to look at COVID-19 and animal populations. Um, I asked Environment Canada a whole bunch of questions for the story. And I asked, will there be funding for this? And, and you know, how long is the surveillance going to go on? And they didn't really answer the funding question directly. Mm. And then they said the surveillance programs that they're doing um, are going into spring 2022. And I was like, well, it is spring 2022. Like, um, so, you know, what would it take? I'm sure that all the researchers across Canada and around the world are constantly telling 
their governments at every level how important this is. You know, I also, I linked in my story to a story of the New York Times about mink and animal surveillance in the United States. And there was an American researcher in there who was just saying she was ripping her hair out about how frustrating it was to try and, and convey this to governments. Um, what, another of the South African researchers I spoke to, Darren Martin, he is a very colorful guy. And his opinion was that people just don't want to know because what do you do? You know? Yeah killing millions of mink being one example, like what would you do if all sorts of deer, like every deer in Ontario had COVID-19 and was passing it to humans, which is not happening. But what would you do if that was the case? What would you do if it was in, you know, in an endangered rhino in Africa or something? Um, right. So that was a pretty dark way of looking at it. I tend to think it's more of an oversight than three steps ahead, not wanting to deal with the problem, but I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's naive on my part. Um, but what it would take is just listening to the healthcare workers and researchers basically who are saying how important this is again, you know, in terms of the theories of Omicron. So I said, one of them is that it was in an immunocompromised population. The second theory is that it was in um, just a population where there's not a lot of surveillance. So an under-tested population. So, you know, perhaps like um, a country without a lot of money or without a lot of access to testing that just isn't doing a lot of testing. That's one, one theory as to where Omicron could have come from. And then the last theory is an animal population. Um, and there's a nature story that I linked to in mine. And they talk about some researchers who think it's rats because again, rats, there are a lot of rats and they like to live where humans live and they reproduce really fast. And so rodents are something that a lot of researchers are super interested in. Uh, there's an Ontario program to, to watch out for rodent pathogens generally that has been adopted to look for, um, SARS-2. And yeah, there's some researchers in New York who are kind of obsessed with rodents because there's a variant in wastewater in New York that no humans have actually tested for yet. So it's like in the water, the wastewater and the sewage, but it's not in humans. And so they have a theory that like, maybe this is the variant that rats are, are, you know, passing around, but the lack of funding to do that research is, is really stopping them from proving or disproving that point. And they seemed quite frustrated about that. I mean, given that the predominant theory is that this entire pandemic happened because of a virus coming from an animal, it, you know, I, it it seems very strange that this problem is staring us in the face and we're choosing not to do that much about it. Like, it, it's deja vu, kind of. Yeah, it's funny when, when I was interviewing these researchers and they kept using that term, one health, one health, and... So when I looked it up, it seems very obvious, right? It's like human health is intertwined with the health of the planet. Like that seems pretty obvious to me. Right. Um, but I guess only, it's only been about like 20 years that, that that idea, like one health is something that like the World Health Organization and, you know, all the big um, Health Canada and, all, you know, all the big governmental health organizations, it's only been about 20 years that they've really been running with this idea. And clearly it hasn't been absorbed. Scott Weiss also said to me, again, it's not doctors or researchers that are having a hard time understanding why we need to look at COVID in animals. It's always at the level of having to fund it and having to, you know, really put in place a framework of how to do it. That's always where the problem tends to be. Doesn't sound that different from climate change, to be honest. And, and you know, so what's also interesting about zoonotic diseases and the idea that the very um, 
strongly held theory that COVID is a disease that was originally in an animal population that jumped to humans, right. perhaps through an intermediary animal, is that um, it, the likelihood of zoonotic diseases is becoming greater and greater because of a lot of human activity that's also contributing to climate change. For example, destroying animals' habitats sends wild animals closer to where humans live, which um, gives us greater opportunities to interface with them. A greater demand for meat often causes more factory farming, which can be a problem in terms of zoonotic diseases and or, um, you know, this idea of, of like a wet market in China because of a, of a greater demand for meat, mm-hmm. which is we don't know if if. COVID-19 came from a wet market, but it is the kind of human activity that contributes to climate change and also contributes to the emergence of zoonotic diseases. And then because human populations are so mobile and so dense and, you know, living in such close proximity to each other, not only have we made it more likely for these viruses to emerge, we've also made it more likely that they're going to spread, spread really fast among humans if it does turn out that we can catch, catch a disease from other animals. So, it's all very much linked together, which is again why I think like this idea of one health seems very obvious, but apparently is something that people need to study and understand. On that dark note, I will leave the big picture conversation there. Before you go, I have one more practical question, which is uh, what should I or a listener do if uh, we suspect our cat or dog has COVID or if, and I'm I'm not being super joking, but we see a raccoon clearly in respiratory distress in our backyard? Like, who, who do we call? Um, so if your cat or dog has COVID, it's actually quite common, I think. About 50% of cats that live with humans who get COVID get it. I think it's like 30% of dogs. And really, it's kind of, they just got to get over it like us. I, I don't know that, I don't know actually if there are treatments for COVID for cats and dogs. Right. I know that vets can test for it. Like okay. a friend of mine told her that her cat now gets tested for COVID whenever they go to the vet. One of the researchers did tell me at the beginning, one of the reasons she thinks that it didn't really catch on is because researchers didn't want people to be using a very rare PCR tests on testing their cats and dogs. Um, But so really you just like take care of them and hopefully they'll get over it just like with any other illness. Um, And then one thing I learned from the story is that the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative will, if you call them like about a a dead animal um, in your yard or even roadkill, um, they will consider coming out to to collect it and test it for different things. If you saw the raccoon sneezing and then the next day the poor raccoon had died in your backyard, you could call the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative and they might come get it. And in the meantime, just stay away. Yes. I mean, I generally stay away from raccoons anyway. Fair. Yeah. Denise, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate the time and the insight. Oh, thanks for having me. Denise Balkasun, Ontario Bureau Chief for the Narwhal. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can talk to us anytime via email, thebigstorypodcast at rci.rogers.com. And of course, every podcast player, every smart speaker, just ask for us, say, play The Big Story Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.